Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. everybody and welcome back to a brand new year of the Squiggly Careers podcast. Hooray! <laughs> Hooray! Yeah, we're very, very excited because this year is a big year for the Squiggly Careers podcast and all things squiggly, in fact, because it is the year that we launch our book, The Squiggly Career, which two days, two, two days, two days, we're very excited. And we've got a really exciting month of podcasts to talk to you all about to celebrate that. But first, just a couple of things. If you've never listened to this podcast before, I am Helen and the other person on the podcast is Sarah. Hi everybody, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And every week we bring you different episodes all designed to help you to take action and control of your career, whether it's about feedback, how to manage your manager, your personal development, your professional development. We cover all of it and I think we've got over like 110 episodes now. So you can, if you're new, there's lots to go and listen to. We also, actually, just a quick pointer, just over the Christmas period, because you may not have listened to it yet, we did a two-part podcast. We did 20 questions for 2020. Uh, Lots of different reflection. If you still feel you've got a bit of that in you and you want to get yourself set up for the year, definitely worth a listen to those ones. But this week is the first of a special month of podcasts where we are going to be diving deep into people's squiggly career stories. And so what we're doing in January is we have invited lots of different interesting people that we know to share their squiggly career stories with us and with you our listeners so we're just going to do it for four weeks and then normal service will resume (laughs) but it has given us the opportunity to speak to some really interesting people who we just know that you'll find fascinating learn a lot from and they're just it's been a really fun process and we're starting this week with two incredible people who are really epitomize I think the squiggly career dream and that's Emma Gannon and Levi Roots. So Helen, you interviewed Levi. How was it? I loved it. I feel like he's really famous. <laughs> I feel like everyone knows about Levi Roots from Dragon's Den. But actually, yeah. in the conversation that you're here in this episode, we really get into his career and his life. And, and you know, he's had quite a long career, like from being a musician, yeah. the Dragon's Den thing, products he's launched. And we cover, I think, the bit that really sticks with me, the squiggly highs and lows, and particularly the lows. Like, we got into a really tricky time in his career, two years of a court case, the business nearly folding, the relationships that he had around him. I think we really get into it. And I found that 
the story behind the story. I found yeah. it really interesting. What about you and Emma? Oh, Emma's brilliant. I think <laughs> Emma is probably almost one of the original squiggly career advocates. Yeah. I feel like with her book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, she probably recognised early on and was a bit of a pioneer for work doesn't have to work in the way it always has done. And she did something about it. You know, she was in quite a traditional corporate career and recognised that that couldn't be it and she didn't want it to be it and she wanted to work in a different way. And I think what's really nice talking to Emma is because she kind of lives and breathes it, she's also incredibly honest about the realities of that, what's really good about it, how much hard work it takes. You know, I think sometimes squiggly careers, especially, you know, someone like Emma, who's got such a big following on Instagram, can look really shiny. And, you know, she talks about how hard it is, how much effort she's kind of put into things. But, yeah, it's a really, I think, practical and kind of useful conversation in terms of just she has made that change you know she's made that transition and she's still transitioning now like even when you talk to her you can see that she's sort of evolving into her next career and she's written her first novel so she's written a lot lot of non-fiction but she's written her first novel which is called Olive which I'm really excited to read because I have to say I do like fiction maybe even a tiny bit more than (laughs) non-fiction despite having written a non-fiction book and I think it's she's someone who a lot of people will know and really admire so it was really brilliant to get the opportunity to speak to her firsthand. And we should say that because we've got these stories with people we didn't want to cut them short that we did debate or should we try and cut bits out so we can keep it into a 40 minute episode but we think their stories are so interesting and their lessons and insights so valuable that their podcasts over the next month are going to be slightly longer so it might be an on the way to work and an on the way back (laughs) from work listen so that you can yeah glean as much information and insight and inspiration as you can from them and if you enjoy today's stories and you'd like to hear maybe four people's stories live we are doing an event on the 20th of january in london where you'll get to hear from kenya king a guy called Jack Graham. Charles Wasman. Wow. Elizabeth Ubervenene. So we've got some brilliant people and we've saved 20 tickets for our podcast listeners because, as always, we're incredibly grateful to everybody who tunes in every week and listens. And so if you'd like to come, if you either go onto Instagram, there's a link in our bio and that'll take you straight through to where tickets are. And we're at Amazing If on Instagram. Or you can just Google Squiggly Careers Live and you'll see that the Eventbrite ticket comes up. The tickets are £35, but if you use the code PODCAST, you'll get a guest free. So let's get straight into it then and on to Emma's squiggly career story and her conversation with Sarah. Welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so pleased that Emma is here and doing our first squiggly career story for us for a couple of reasons. Firstly, she is, I think, a real pioneer in this area. Not only has she done this herself, and we'll talk a bit about her story and how she spent her time and how she sort of redesigned and reconfigured her work life to really work for her, but I also think she really inspires other people to do the same. And we know that because actually somebody who works with us, someone called Ria, who helps us with all our social media and design, we interviewed her earlier this year and said, oh, you know, what you're doing? Why do you want to work with us? And her answer to that question was, oh, I read the multi-hyphen method and thought, that's it. I'm going to reconfigure my life. I want to become freelance. I want to work with brands I'm really passionate about. And that's why I'm interviewing for this role. And that's why I'd really like to work for you. I love that. Oh, that's so, so nice. And it is always those stories of, I met a friend of a friend or someone Mm. who I work with and they did genuinely make a change off the back of the book. And it's really special. That's seriously why I wrote it. So I love those stories. So let's start with a bit of quick fire questions so that people get to know you a little bit more in case they're not familiar with the work that you do. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you were growing up? I think I just wanted to be creative. 
And what would be one word to describe your career so far? Zigzaggy. Or I would say an upwards zigzag, which Ooh, sounds, nice. sounds quite positive, I think. Yeah, really good. And out of 10, how squiggly do you think your career has been? Oh, I was thinking about this one and I was going to be like, it's 10. But actually, <laughs> I, I think it's more of actually a five because it's within the same realm. I wasn't like trained as a lawyer and then went to be a doctor and then yeah. it was a vet. It's like, it's quite in the same camp what I've done. And one person who's really inspired you in your work so far in your career? Got to be Queen Elizabeth Gilbert. She is oh, absolutely up yeah. there for me. She's perfect. I love her. And dream job, I mean, it may be what you're doing today, but if I was say to you, right, you've got to work, but that's your only constraint, what do you think you'd be spending your time doing? I mean, I feel incredibly lucky because this question reminded me really that I'm genuinely doing what I want to do. Mm. And that is so rare and such a privilege. You know, like I went to a screening the other day because I'm interviewing one of the actresses and I was like, I'm watching a film at 10am on a Wednesday. <gasps> that's so glamorous. And, and it, it just was that moment of, because you can still get lost in the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, Work course. is still stressful and I still get annoying emails and I still cry and still boring in the toilet. And it's frustrating like, and, yeah. <laughs> totally, but it's like that whole, like, what would you tell your 15-year-old self question? It's like, oh, my God, it just takes you right back to feeling, so nice. feeling grateful. So on that note then, let's delve into a bit of a week in the life of Emma then at the moment. So when you're not at 10am, very glamorous screenings, what else would you typically be doing in a week at the moment? So I've got quite good now at dedicating a day to a thing because oh. I truly believe that being a multi-hyphenate isn't about multitasking. So it's not about having 17 different tabs open and just like changing between yeah. jobs and feeling stressed. <laughs> Monday for me is my desk day. So it's like no calls, pretty much no emails, but just like what am I doing? Planning the week ahead and really thinking and reading and getting my head together basically. Because after the weekend, I feel like Mondays are really... A bit of a horrible day. And then Tuesday, like, I'm just straight in, basically, with podcasting. I'll probably do about four recordings in a day. Because right. I, oh, wow. I try and do them back to back. So I basically have, I'm done for Ooh, the month. that's hard work. Done for the month. I know. It's quite intense. But I've done, like, 200 episodes now. And I feel that I can switch between interviews very quickly. Right. Which I, that's I a feel like skill. it's a skill that I've honed. I forget that it's a skill. But, like, I interviewed the two journalists that broke the Harvey Weinstein story. And then I went and interviewed someone else who'd written a novel about... A plane crash. So I was like, my brain is trying to do so many flips. The agility there. there to... Yeah, so that's like a Tuesday. And then, anyway, I won't go through my whole week, but I've also just finished writing a novel. So that would mm. be like another day where it would just be novel and I put an out-of-office on being like, I've escaped into a book today, so. And I think in your book you talk about almost changing your work and thinking about 90-minute segments mm -hmm. sometimes. Actually, it's something that we really advocate. Whenever we're running workshops, we won't run any session for more than 90 minutes without having a break, even if we don't quite finish a session mm -hmm. or if we're like, oh, it's a bit awkward to stop now. We will always say, let's just stop, even if it's for 10, 15 minutes, just to pause, let people take a break, just re-energise, reboot a tiny bit. And I noticed in the book you talk about that as well in terms mm -hmm. of going, it's so easy easy to sit at our desks, almost lose track a bit of time and get really stuck in your inbox or like your big long to-do list. And then you, you suddenly realise it's been two, two and a half hours and you've not even made a cup of tea yeah. or had a little bit of a break. Yeah. Now that you may be a bit more in control of how you spend your time, are you more conscious of that? Or do you still find that sometimes happens where you're like, actually, I've not taken a break for three hours because I've maybe been really absorbed in, in my writing 
Or do you stop and think, no, I'm going to make myself have a break? Yeah, I definitely do the break thing. I set a timer because, like you just said... Yeah, natural, the real practical, the timer, that's a really good idea. I mean, obviously I won't be like, if I'm in the middle of a juicy (laughs) sentence, sentence, I'm (laughs) going to be like, stop, cut myself off. But no, I really believe in that because I've tested it out over the years and I feel that if I take more breaks, A, the work I think is better, but also I can go on for longer because I can just burn out during the day around like Mm. 3 or 4 p.m., it's kind of like when I, I interviewed the headspace and yeah, um, it was like the chief science officer, so she had loads of stats, but she was saying that it's kind of similar the way they work is they will basically take a 10-minute meditation break yes. throughout the day. Oh, nice. And it adds, I think, an hour of productive work into the day. Wow. So giving their employees the freedom to be like... Because I think there's still a stigma. If you said to your boss, sorry, Dave, I'm just going <laughs> off to yeah. meditate, it would be like, no, get back really? to your desk. <laughs> yeah. Whereas actually they're like, go and take as many breaks as you want because at the end of the day, we're getting more out of you. That's so interesting. So now, I mean, you have this brilliantly multi-hyphened world of writing, broadcasting, podcasting. How does that compare to where you started when you first went into the world of work and the first few years of your career? What what were you doing then? Oh my God, it's wildly different when I started (laughs) out because there's nothing that different about my entry into the working world. Like I was definitely conditioned to be like, right, I'm going to go to London and I'm going to get a job and I need to pay my bills. Yeah. Like, I actually wasn't very adventurous at all in my early 20s. I was like, you get a job and you stick to it. Mm. And that's why I didn't leave my job for ages. Like, I had a full-time job for six or seven years, and I had all these side hustles, but I just couldn't let it go that I needed to have a job. Yeah. Like, I think at university, someone had, like, come into our lecture theatre and basically just been like, there's a recession going on, and, like, 20% of you will get a job. And we were really scaremongers. And I don't know whether it was just my university, but it was like constant. And I graduated and I was just like, I'll do anything to get a job. I will do anything. I don't even care. So actually my expectations were incredibly low for myself. But in a way, it's good to have low expectations, then high hopes, and then everything carries on exceeding. (laughs) So I got an internship. I worked at a PR agency. And it's really funny. I don't know, I feel old now because, (laughs) I mean, I've just turned 30, but we used to ring journalists on the phone and there would be loads of journalists and there weren't really any bloggers. Like it was... Yeah, it was quite really traditional, yeah, yeah. just the way we worked. And I remember getting a piece of coverage in the news of the world. And <laughs> I don't know, it's just weird. I feel like times have changed so much. And one day I'll get to reminisce about that as being really old school. And then bloggers started happening in like 2010. And then I, I just thought, I'll do that. Because we were paying the invoices of these people. And I was like, <laughs> well, they're writing. And making money. And making that. money. And I just, you know, you keep putting two and two together, I think, and just try it out. And so was there a moment you suddenly thought, how I'm working at the moment isn't working for me? Because as you said, it took you, you worked in a full-time sort of more traditional probably setup and structure for a significant number of years before making that leap. Talk to me about that transition, because that takes, even now, where perhaps it's more common for people to work in different ways and, more, and there definitely are more freelancers yeah. or people setting up by themselves. I still think it takes loads of bravery, having made that leap myself this year, out of kind of bigger corporate structures, there's loads of stuff that holds you back in terms of your identity. Mm-hmm. Like you say, should I have a proper job? I just do struggle sometimes to explain. I mean, my boyfriend's an accountant and he's just like, really? Is it a job, Sarah? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, are you sure you've actually got a job? And, you know, you just sort of 
those conventions have been around for such a long time that actually breaking those conventions is hard. And you've been doing it for a little while now, so it must have felt probably even harder, I guess, when you first did it. So yeah, yeah, really tell me did. a bit about that kind of process. Yeah, well, I think that's why I wrote the book. That really was, because I think books come from an emotional place, yes. always. I yeah. think they come from a, a need and a message and just like a connection. At the heart of it, I think books are just the most authentic way of telling a story I think but anyway what happened was I had this shiny job at Condé Nast so like Mm -hmm. long story short I worked in PR I worked in advertising I worked at agencies and got my in air quotes dream job working at Condé Nast and we all watch The Devil Wears Prada (laughs) like we all know who Anna Wintour is like it was just that moment of like I have a Condé Nast email address and wow feels quite shiny it's very shiny it's very like you know you just don't need to kind of do any squigglies you're just like this is me And then what I realised was, unfortunately, the magazine industry isn't what it was in the 90s. (laughs) We're not drinking champagne, breaking big deals anymore, unfortunately. So I decided it wasn't for me and left the job and genuinely had that identity crisis thing of, if anyone asked me, what do you do? I literally like broke into a sweat. Oh, yeah. Because I was like, I don't know. Had you started writing then your first book by then? Or was that something that you did you leave and have a very kind of clean break and then start doing? Because you said you sort of had some side hustles always going yeah. on in the background. No, I got the book deal from my blog during being there. But I still left and felt like I didn't have like a job title. No. And I think that's what threw me. And I had yeah, I did have the book and I had some other stuff. But I, I just felt like I'd lost my footing. Because even if you've got a book deal, it doesn't mean you're gonna get another one. So I just felt a bit on edge. And then I thought, right, I actually need to find a solution to when people say, what do you do? I need to say confidently, I'm a multi-hyphenate and I do this, this and this and this. And I'm really proud of it. I wrote the book to basically say to people, if you're feeling lost, here's how we can flip it and celebrate actually what we're doing. So let's talk a bit about success because one of the things I really liked in the book is you have quite early on in the book, there's like a pie chart mm-hmm. where you encourage people to sort of just think about how they're spending their time and almost the percentage of time they would like to be spending on different things. You've got like 25% of your time you would like to spend with friends and family. I really enjoyed that you want to spend 5% of your time or make sure that you've got enough money to buy a throw for your sofa, which I, I enjoyed. I'm in, obsessed with I enjoyed how specific that was. <laughs> you were like, just 5%. I really like this specific throw, which I I thought was very nice and we think when we spend time with lots of people now I think people still sometimes have these kind of anchors of success that are defined by what they think they should have or should be doing maybe what they've been told by family friends mm-hmm. bosses who go oh you know you should want to do this job or you should be doing these things and then when people start to really think about it for themselves and think in my life generally what is the role of work what does success look like for me people get quite big moments of realisation where they thought it was one thing and actually it's something quite different. Yeah. How have you found that process in terms of when you started work and, you know, you're obviously successful in world one that you were in because you ended up in, you know, Condé Nast with like fancy job, working on brilliant things. People would have looked at you outside in and gone, oh, wow, she's really successful. Did that feel like success to you? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with success because I think success, the way I've written about it in the book, it ties in with comparison. So it's Mm. basically what is your definition versus are you looking at someone else and just thinking, I want that all the time? Yeah. Because then you haven't quite defined it for yourself. Yeah, no, I definitely chased the traditional version of success. Absolutely. I was like, I want to work at Condé Nast and I I want it to look very shiny. It was all about how it looked. That's all I cared about. For a few years, I was like, does my LinkedIn look 
good, great. <laughs> Do I refresh my own LinkedIn? No, I didn't. But it was like, I'm so proud of working at this company and how does it look? And But the thing is, is I feel like I had to get there to then unpick yes. my yeah, new yeah, definition. Yeah. And it's okay, I think, to chase the things that you think you want and then realise you don't want them anymore. Yeah, well, that's almost the thing about being work in progress, having an exploring mindset is there's not like this moment where you're like, I'm suddenly going to be done. I think yeah. when I started out in my career, you know, I was in really big corporate organisations and you just go, oh, there's going to be this point where I'll climb this ladder and then suddenly some sort of nirvana type yes. moment is going to happen. Yeah. And then I suddenly realised, probably like a good 10 years into working in these companies, that I'd loved lots of it, but there wasn't going to be a nirvana moment. There wasn't going to be a point where you're like, that's it, I'm done now. You are continually exploring, figuring out what you want, what you don't want. And it's okay for those definitions to change. Totally. And it's like that old saying which is like it's not what it looks like on the outside but how it feels in the inside oh, yeah, like how nice. do you feel on a daily basis it doesn't matter if some random cousin thinks that you're like bossing your career when you're <laughs> crying every night yeah. in bed <laughs> like it just doesn't matter so I feel really lucky that I hit a milestone quite young and realized it's all kind of bs because <laughs> then I just got to like kind of just be like okay cool done that how do you now think about success for yourself like what does a good year of work feel like to you? Well, I've had a massive shift because mm. I've mentioned it already on this podcast and I keep talking about it, but 30 feels incredible. <laughs> I'm so happy that my 20s are done. Oh I really my enjoyed God. my early 30s. Mid-30s less so, but early 30s were good. And I feel really like 40 fun. is great as well. Yeah, like, I need to get, I'm nearly there. I need to get to that bit, I think. I don't like this middle bit. Maybe it's like a fresh decade thing. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Maybe it'll all go downhill now. I just feel really on the other side of a bit of a crazy decade of basically being a workaholic if I'm being honest mm -hmm. I it was like foot to the floor pedal like I I was obsessed I'm gonna get where I want to get to and if it means not going to the pub on a Sunday and if it means being rubbish on WhatsApp and and actually when we're talking about success I'm now looking at my year ahead and going I need to rebalance and it's a choice because I, yeah. I also understand if people don't prioritize certain other things in their life but I've just been like, right, okay, you need to readdress other areas of your life now. Being a better friend, being that person that like sends a bunch of flowers to someone just to be like thinking of you or being someone who has more time to like listen to someone and not rush off and be like, sorry, I've got a deadline. I don't know if that sounds a bit woo woo, but I, <laughs> I really think I basically parked a lot of like personal things in order to and it is a sacrifice when you're constantly working so my definition of success by the end of 2020 I hope is just going to be like I'm going to be really proud of my novel and things like that but I'm, I hope I'm going to be proud of just me outside of work a bit more and talk to us a bit more about your novel because we've not we've not really talked about it yet so as we were first meeting today I was saying to Emma how impressed and in awe I was of her that she can switch from writing some incredible business books that have been top of the Sunday Times bestseller list and all those kind of things and has now written a fiction novel and that's so ambidextrous and so amazing and I feel like it's such a different thing to have done so how has that process been this year has it been quite similar to the other books you've written or has it been completely different oh my god it's been so so different it's been the hardest thing I've ever done it feels good though because it's when you do something hard, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'll never run a marathon, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> I feel like this is the equivalent of like sweat, blood, and tears. Um, in words instead. <laughs> yeah, and you know, so many redrafts and like it's literally a new, it's a completely different skill. So I'm not, I'm basically back to square one again in terms of like my confidence being lower because I'm not like an expert in this new thing. I'm trying it. I'm really proud of the book though. It's about a woman it's called Olive. It's called it? Olive. Yeah. She's the central character, but it's about four friends in their 30s who all grew up having the same life, school, university, shared house, turned 30 and their lives just wildly changed. One of them is having IVF, one of them has three kids, one of them is pregnant and then Olive doesn't want children and it's how their lives intersect and change and it's a story about friendship. It's funny because I was like, wow, it's really different from the multi-hyphen method but then I was like, the link is that it's a reminder, you can do anything if you want to. Also, Olive was a side hustle so I didn't get a book deal just like, here you go, Emma. We trust you to write fiction. No, it was like, I'm going to earn my money in the other ways that I do. And I wrote Olive over the course of a year on the side. Oh, interesting. So I basically worked for free for a year, which is what a side hustle is, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm really glad I did it that way because it was my little secret and it was my passion project. And I reminded myself of the joy of a side hustle again. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about technology and the role that technology has played um, kind of in your life and in your career, because you, you know, you talked a bit about social media, you know, you've got a really big presence on Instagram, got a really big community that you've built up over a really long period of time and really invested in, like you're very kind of authentic, you're really fun to follow, you're always really interesting, all the different guests that you meet. Has technology been like a force for good universally kind of in your career? Because I sort of, from a distance and as we've started to get to know each other, I sort of feel like you use it in a positive way, in a way that's a good kind of role model for others. But it's good to kind of get behind the surface of that screen and and understand a bit about the reality from you. Thank you, because I, like everyone, I have a really love-hate relationship with Instagram in particular. Right. I don't know where I stand on it because you kind of need it now. I feel like it's the new website. It's the new, like, you know, someone is maybe wondering if they want to work with me. I'm sure they'll just go to Instagram first. Whereas I prefer Twitter personally, just from like... Do you know what? I think journalists and people who are writers at their heart like Twitter. Yeah, because it's just loads of weirdos together. Writing and being funny. Just writing and making stupid jokes and like doing memes. And (laughs) that's my true like geeky home, I think. But Instagram's very kind of... You've either got the perfect life thing going on with like look at my perfect child and in our matching outfits. (laughs) Or you've got... I'm crying on Instagram stories and and can someone help me? And I'm like, well, where's... That makes me uncomfortable as well because going on Instagram to really need help, I'm like, I hope you have support. I've seen this sort of like oversharing, which actually I don't like the word oversharing. It is just sharing, but I feel like that's going to an extreme. And then we've got the like someone literally face-tuning like away any sort of wrinkle. So it's like we're in this weird world of got body positivity but we've also got the Kardashians selling us like weight loss lollipops or whatever they are so it's a wild wild west on Instagram but it's like you know the whole curate your own magazine thing so just like follow what you want to see in the mornings so my point being that I think the platform itself can be positive and negative but how you choose to use it really is the only thing that matters I'm so careful now it's like when you reach for your phone in the morning and look at it, you're basically strapping yourself in for like 
not knowing what you're going to see. Yeah. And so I don't want that feeling of like, am I going to be triggered? Am I going to be jealous? Am I going to be angry? Am I going to be upset? I'm like, just follow some people you like. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And mute things that make you feel bad. So I take full responsibility of how I feel on social media because I think it's our... It all falls on us on how we use it, I think. One of the things we both know, um, Bruce Daisley, who wrote wrote a really good book called The Joy of Work, uh, who we interviewed earlier this year, in his book, one of the things he talks about is turning off notifications, a really small thing. And yeah. I did that nine months ago, so towards yeah. the start of 2019. Absolute life changer. Yeah, I did that. And I've done that. For, I've never had push notifications. No, I don't. For like you. years and years, I've never had yeah. that. Because that is the gamification bit. That's the ding, 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 ding. Yeah, yeah. You've won a prize. You have a like. <laughs> that's the stuff I'm just not interested in anymore. And back to the novel thing, that's why I wrote the novel as well, is because it was almost like a challenge to myself of, do you have an attention span? <laughs> like, come on, Emma, stop mm. tweeting and write something because at the end of the day, I want to be a writer and I can only make that happen if I sit down and write. And that means turning off your phone. And so we'll finish with your kind of best piece of career advice in a minute. But one of the things I just wanted to also get your perspective on, because I think loads of our listeners will be really interested in, is you use a phrase in multi-hyphen method, which I really like as almost a title for a chapter, which is self-promoting without selling your soul. Mm. And we get asked a lot about branding like thinking about how you talk about what you do in a way that's okay and feels okay feels good to do a lot of what you do you must have had to think about this because you are your product in lots of you know Mm -hmm. like people are going I want to work with Emma it's not there's like another brand like previously when you were working on magazine titles or things like that how have you got your head around kind of self-promoting and like you say still feeling good about yourself yeah well that bit actually is kind of the more successful part of the book because people I think really suffer with it's a massive part of my job and also if I didn't self-promote I wouldn't get any more work because okay. if I just worked on something and never put it online because like a lot <laughs> no of, one would see it no because like a lot of like potential clients follow me like it is mm. a, my Instagram is a business account I have a private account as well yeah where I share pictures of my nephews you know picking their nose and stuff um <laughs> but like no one wants to see that so it's like that account is very much a like here's my work. Mm -hmm. So it's very much integral to it. But in the book, I talk about how we need to just reframe it. It's not look at me, this is what I've done. Please like shower me with likes and rewards. It's more, how would you tell your friend in the pub what you've just done? Yeah, you tell your friend. And if you didn't, maybe they're not your friend, because I think we're allowed to talk about our achievements. It's absolutely okay to say, I just did this really cool project. Can I tell you about it? Yeah. And so if the tone of voice is genuine, I mean, I actually got trolled the other day for saying something like, don't do it in a braggy tone. And then someone was like, well, what if I do want to brag? And I was like, well, you can. <laughs> if you want to. What, what I'm, personally, what's worked for me is so I feel good. I say it in a tone of voice that is just to a friend because I wouldn't brag yeah. to a friend. And so therefore, if it's really just coming across in your speaking voice, I don't think anyone can have a problem with you. No, and I think one of the things that has really helped me is almost sharing the things that I'm like proud of or, and, and where I feel like I've been successful and added value almost the reason in the back of my mind as well for doing that in the right way is I'd like to do more of those things mm-hmm. and I think you never know who can help you who can spot opportunities on your behalf and so that doesn't mean that you have to be really kind of pushy or aggressive or anything like that but you can say oh but I've really enjoyed doing more writing this year that's been a real revelation for me this particular piece that I wrote was you know lots of people seem to get really interested mm-hmm. in it lots of engagement lots of comments you know and then actually someone then might say oh, well, if you'd like to do more of that, 
you should speak to this person. I mean, absolutely. You just never quite know. And I think that's what I'm finding with the work that we do is just talking about things that matter to you and showing that you care is okay. I was saying to Emma before we started that we went to the factory to see our book printed and we were the least cool debut authors I think they have ever met because we were just like, this is the best day ever. If you looked back and and you were like, oh, I didn't fully enjoy or like show my enjoyment, that would be such a shame. Yeah, and we were obviously trying to get some pictures and stuff and there was some stuff that... We came and were like, oh, we should have filmed that bit or got that picture. But I was like, do you know what? You were in the moment. We were really in the moment. Those things are never going to happen or they're not going to happen very often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so no, that's why if I feel... we don't have the perfect picture for Instagram, I don't care. <laughs> exactly. I mean, 100%. I hope that never goes away. I actually genuinely think that sometimes when I get a good opportunity and I'm, I'm doing something, maybe it's like travelling or something. Mm. I'm just like giddy on the flight. Like, I can't believe I'm like getting paid to go to somewhere else imagine just like getting on there and being really like oh just oh, another yeah, yeah. another really cool thing I'm doing you know <laughs> like, imagine being that person it'd be awful so yeah I'm the same I was the most uncool person at the HarperCollins party the other night <laughs> everyone else was like novelists just like in the corner like on their fourth novel and I was just like jumping up and down we feature you in our book talking about your best piece of career advice but for everybody who's been listening today if they're thinking wow I'm so inspired by Emma she's sort of talks about this stuff so articulately but also does it you know you're doing this stuff day in day out what piece of advice would you give to people now if they're thinking actually in 2020 I think this is the year that I need to sort of take a bit more ownership and accountability for my career maybe start to do some of the things that that you've done go through some of that process for themselves yeah I mean it's hard because over the process of releasing this book I actually kind of have recoiled slightly from being like a someone that gives advice because I actually feel like weirdly the best piece of advice I've ever got is like don't really listen to anyone else figure like, out, what figure like, it out for yourself like you read all or... the books and 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 be inspired but take it and change it and make it yours yeah and I you know I highlight stuff in books and it might be like not quite right but at the essence of it has helped me make a decision or so basically kind of do a bit of a DIY project on your own advice like follow your gut don't try and copy and paste someone else's career path because it just doesn't work yeah What's worked for me will not work for you. What's worked for someone else never would have worked for me. So forget the whole, like, if you're going to go to a panel and listen to someone's career story, great, but don't be like, right, that's what I have to do. Yeah. That, that's what I truly believe. Do you know what that also really echoes? Um, we spoke to Dame Stephanie Shirley earlier this year. <gasps> oh, my God, she's um, amazing. Yeah, she was incredible. And one of the things that she said is most people shouldn't be entrepreneurs. And I really liked it. She was just very clear. She was like, most people should not start their own company, should not run their own companies yeah. but for lots and lots of reasons. But, you know, sometimes there's these perceptions, aren't there, of like there are certain things that are like better somehow yeah. or that we should all really want to do. Um, well, we're in the, this entrepreneurial, like glamorised, yeah. romanticised, <laughs> glorified. It's like must be on the hustle. It's like mm, it's not for everyone. No. But and I, if saw us doing invoices at like 10 o'clock at night, it might be less glamorous, I think. Yes, it really is. <laughs> Which is basically what I was doing last night. So Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I would say, which is in line with that, is, you know, not everyone is entrepreneurial or should be or can be, but I think everyone is creative. I agree. And I just think even if you bought a lovely vase and you've just put some really nice flowers in it and you've made it look nice, you're a creative person. Mm -hmm. And I think if you feel like someone told you you weren't or you have a corporate job, so therefore you can't be, it's like you are because you're a human being and we are creative people by nature. So if you feel like there's something you want to do on the side, go and do it. Yeah, I think you, if you're doing it for the right reasons, you will never regret it. It's the best things I've ever done. 
whether it's work or life actually generally have all come from like fun little passion projects I think yeah so Emma thank you so much for joining us just as a reminder for people I know lots of our listeners will already be really big fans but they can listen to your podcast control out delete which is on every podcast platform I'm guessing pretty much they can still get your book the multi-hyphen method from everywhere where you can buy books and they can pre-order Olive now anything else in terms of anywhere else they can find you on Instagram obviously yes on Instagram I'm just Emma Gannon UK and Twitter Emma Gannon and if you have any American listeners I don't know if you do maybe you do global squiggly careers global (laughs) um, the multi-hyphen method is actually coming out in America in April and so um, if anyone over there wants a copy because it's slightly different you can get it then brilliant thank you so much it's been really interesting to hear your story today you too thank you so much how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Emma as much as I did. Um, we're now going to move on to you hearing Helen interviewing Levi Roots. Welcome to Squeaky Coast Podcast, Levi Roots. Respect. Ah, <laughs> thank you. Um, so first question then, Levi Roots, it's a really unique name. Have you ever met another <laughs> you Levi sound Roots? You sound like Theopathetis <laughs> <laughs> when I was on Dragons then many years ago. That was his first word to me. Levi Roots, what a wonderful name. He's is that your real name? name? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's such a great name. Well, I, I remember when I started, I, I wanted to be on the stage when mm-hmm. I was in school. I, I knew that you had to have a cool name because I was listening to a lot of reggae when I was a kid and, and you had names like Bob Marley and, yeah. and Peter Tosh and these names sound 
really exotic and cool. And my father had given me this really stupid name of a Scottish warlord. <laughs> what was the warlord? <laughs> Keith Graham. Okay. The Graham clan. I don't know where they've got that from. <laughs> um, uh, and why did he give that name to a Caribbean kid? You know, Keith. Well, what am I doing with that? And I just thought, there was absolutely no way I'm going to go on stage and be introduced as a Keith. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to any Keiths listening. Sorry to it any just Keith didn't fit you. Yes. And I, I just thought that I had to change it to have something that I could feel like a, a, an African child because I found out that Keith Graham is actually a Scottish name. Mm. I kept looking in the mirror and thinking that I don't look Scottish. You know, something is wrong. I've got to get rid of this Keith and call myself something which is more African, more Caribbean, something that I can feel comfortable in my own skin, in my own name. Mm. I think your name is really important. Yeah. And I chose Levi Roots because I, I wanted to feel like I was a Rastafarian because, again, Bob Marley was a massive inspiration to me and his music and, of course, the Rastafarian culture that was coming through in Jamaica that was teaching everybody about who you are as a black child. Because in America, they had all the people like Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and, and all the civil rights movement was going on. So if you're a black kid, you kind of had a bit of culture in America. But here in the UK, we had nothing. Mm. Now, and all that we could really rely upon to sort of teach us who we were culture-wise was reggae music. Mm-hmm. And that was a massive inspiration to me. So I knew that I had to get rid of Keith and bring something else in so I can be introduced on stage as Levi Roots. <laughs> so how old were you when you became Levi Roots? Just before I left school, I was about 15. I left school at 16 and it was then I was there just pondering, you know, how am I going to get involved in the music? What should I be? How should I be called? Mm. And I'm just trying to find myself and it's very difficult. I mean, now kids have Black History Month and if you're a kid struggling with identity, especially if you're a black kid, you know, nowadays you're in school and Black History Month comes around, lots of speakers come through because I'm now one of these speakers that go to schools and, and chat to kids about history and about culture and that. But in in the 70s, when I was in school in Brixton in South London, there was nobody came around mm. to sort of try and sort ourselves culture wise. So you relied upon a lot of things from your family, stuff from your grandma, from your mother to teach you about culture. And of course, the music was a massive inspiration for that. Sounds like you had quite a strong family system. You mentioned grandparents and the parents. What was they, what did they tell you like a good career? What did they say you should go and do for work? Well, I think most of the influences came through Christianity because, you know, I'm a Jamaican-born, a Caribbean-born, and, and of course, your parents are influenced by the church. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the church, in the Baptist church. In some ways, it kind of straightened out your life in certain ways because the things that your grandmother and your mom is saying and your dad is saying to you is all things that are inspired by the Bible, you know, and it's not bad words. I mean, not everybody will sort of think that way inclined but for me and my teachings you know was all through biblical type teaching so I think it kind of helped me in my later life to be able to look at things in a more open way and in a more fashion that I think will help me when I eventually came to the UK how to behave how to be around people and I learned that all through being in the church so it was really available I mean I didn't grow up to be a pastor as a matter of fact I grew up to be a Rastafari <laughs> which is far removed from the church where my grandma and my mom was but I do think those teachings that they taught me in those early days those biblical teachings has helped me in my later life 
And so did they expect you to go at a traditional office job, a nine-to-five thing? Or Well, that's why my father called me Keith Graham because <laughs> yeah. you know, he was thinking that, you know, as all parents did back then, it's lawyers, doctors... Accountants. And accountants yeah. <laughs> and, and all that kind of stuff. And But I had a different vision. Mm. Um, you know, I, I wanted music in my early days and then later on I wanted to merge my grandmother recipes and food and put that with the music together. And I think that's how I became successful, is merging my two passions together. But the passions existed independently, so you didn't have this grand vision of, at some point, I'm going to be a musician first, and then I'm going to do it. Did it evolve over time? It did, indeed. You never plan it correctly, you know, because (laughs) the elements have different plans for you. I think the best way you can is be in the straight and narrow, so when your time comes, you are ready to move either way. And I was very flexible when I was growing up. I, I didn't think one way that it's got to be the music, it has to be the stage. I thought that was just a plan for something else later on. But I followed my vision because when the time came when the music wasn't working for me, when I wasn't getting on top of the pops and I didn't have the big hits that I thought I deserved to get, it was the time that I had to really admit you know, and that was the most difficult thing. You know, when you have a passion, you've got to admit that perhaps you're not as good as you thought you was at that, and you had to make some kind of changes. But I wasn't getting the successes, and I knew that I had to make a change, and this is when I thought, ah, plan B is the food. But I didn't want to put the music down completely, so mm. what I did was just merge the two together. But it was that admittance that maybe I didn't get the big hits because I'm not good enough. But putting these two together, then maybe that's my route where I want to get to. So was there a trigger, for, you know, for that moment of realisation where you went, I think I need to pivot a bit? Did something specific happen or did you just go, it's another failure on another failure or if that's how you saw it? Well, like most things, you know, relationships has a lot to do with it. And um, I had a relationship that I was really in love with somebody at the time, but I think that maybe we weren't supposed to be at the time, I don't know, but we broke up and, and I went into a, a stage of complete downward spiral. And from being on the stage and playing football with Bob Marley, singing Happy Birthday to Nelson Mandela and doing all these, these cool things to being a, a delivery driver because my relationship failed and the music wasn't happening and, and here I was now driving around delivering parcels and thinking to myself, this is not me. I've got to get out of this and get back to my passions. But that was the wake-up of a, a breakup of relationship and then having to really change my life. But instead of keep going down spirally, I did do the job mm-hmm. because you've got to be able to change your life and do something else. I think sometimes when people think that if they're not going the right way, you, you spiral down and you spiral down until it gets impossible to come back up. But I think maybe it's the Christianity in me that said to me that, you know, Levi, you've got to get up and do something. And I did the driving job, which wasn't the fabulous life that I was having many couple of years before that, on stage, touring around the world, being a mobile-nominated artist. I was driving around in, in a van. But it did bring things to me closer, mm. that I had to make that change. And it was through that that I found myself doing the sauce and merging the music and the food together. And it feels like one of the things that helped you to that tipping point of do I go down and down or do I pivot and do something else? Like you said to yourself, this just isn't me. Like you've got such a strong sense of self. Like you had it at 16, this strong yeah. identity. Again, it was through the teachings of my parents. Mm. You know? It was through that Christianity, that Rastafari thing, you know, because I think it was my way of holding on to something by having something spiritual. 
I grew up as a Rasta young kid in Brixton, and all my friends were were not bad boys, you know. Rastas are more of a laid back type of yeah. guy, you know. You music and and you read in the Bible and you chanting and you do all sorts of stuff, and I think that's really helped me when things you know wasn't going for me my my upbringing, and I kind of held on to that and hoping that a change would come, and the change came when I met the famous moment when I met the producer of Dragons then when I was singing the song in, a, in an event. And so how hard was actually going to that pivot? So moving through to that moment where you've kind of gone, OK, I don't think this music thing is going to be everything I want it to be. I don't want to spiral down and down. I've got a strong sense of self. I'm going to go do this food thing. And then the kind of moment when you're on Dragons Den, you're pitching and everything that followed there in, in creating that business and scaling that business. How hard was that? Because I how much did you know about the food industry and packaging <laughs> and, and commercials of food? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I do think it's that passion that drove me. I I wanted to do something better for myself and for my family. At the time, I had six kids at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, it was seven, but my one lived in America. And having six children and wanting to do better for them and and realising that I, I couldn't because of, of what I was doing, I had to do a change. And it was because of that that I realised that I'm now going to do my grandma's sauce because the music has failed me and I'm going to take this on the road and not sell the sauce to Caribbean people because I had a massive knockback from Caribbean people then because everybody knew how to make their own sauces. Uh. And and I tried to sell the sauce in Brixton in my own community and nobody would have it because they all could make their sauces, their new authentic Caribbean sauces. So seeing Levi Roos walking up and down trying to sell a sauce that's made in Brixton just wasn't doing it for Like selling Dolmio to Italians. I used to be Eskimos. (laughs) So I knew that I had to get out of my locality and take the sauce to mainstream where people didn't know Caribbean food back then. They didn't really know Caribbean sauces. There was no Caribbean sauces on the table with your Heinz tomato ketchup and you and others. So I wanted to be one of the first. So I did, we decided that to take the sauce to anywhere in the UK that had Shire at the end of the name. <laughs> <laughs> So for two years, we would just, you know, look at the map and, you know, and, and go to the shires, you know, wherever they would, <laughs> Carmarthen Shire, Yorkshire, all, all the <laughs> wonderful sounding type places. That's not the way I would do geography. It's not a strong point. Is that, and, um, yeah, we went into the shires to do it and we were... <laughs> we went to the shires, the whole shires. The whole shires. <laughs> two years of just going around to these wonderful small chili festivals, you know, these farmers markets and, and these really cool places, very far (laughs) we used to have to travel but it was a great hit that you know we were doing something different amongst mainstream people that hadn't seen a Rasta man with a guitar singing a song called Reggae Reggae Sauce Song (laughs) I've always said that in those days the people couldn't even pronounce reggae in in the shires you know they were saying Levi could have some of your Reggie Reggie sauce I'm saying no it's not Reggie it's reggae (laughs) until eventually you know as I said I was in the right place at the right time and who's the we when you're like, we drove It was me and my six kids. Oh. <laughs> Did you help them yeah. like selling it? Yeah, we were, we were there. We would turn up, you know, me and the kids, and we would get the guitar out. And my kids, they're very music as well. My daughter, Joanne, she's a great vocalist, so she'll be singing back, back in vocals, you know. And Zayon, my eldest son, will be there doing the sauces and selling the stuff. And people would see this Rasta man, you know, this large Rasta man with a guitar, you know, and six, seven kids behind him. And it was, it was a great spectacle for people to see. 
it's more of a family unit what yeah. we're trying to do there, and it, it worked for us. And are they still involved in kind of your business now? In... No, the business has moved on from there because I guess our... the, your business as a whole, all the things that you do, are they still involved in it? No, no, because we are planned originally before we went on Jaggers and was to maybe to get a small factory and then for the family to do it in that way. But I've always said that my first order from Sainsbury's sort of caught that because we had to produce 250,000 bottles in our first order. So there was no chance for us to build a small factory and sort of move them. That would have taken years. So what we had to do instantly to sort of fill the order from Sainsbury's was to do outsourcing. Mm -hmm. So we are now an outsourced brand. You know, the only thing that's valuable for us is the Levi Roots brand. So we issued that to companies to be able to do our biddings. Mm. So we don't have, you know, lots of people working for us in the family toll, you know, where everything. You have They're the just brand. just relaxing and you just have the brand and whatever we want to do, we just, you know, look for the biggest licensees to be able to say, hey, do you want to do some Levi Roots ice cream? Do you want to do some Levi Roots range of drinks and patties or whatever? Mm. And, um, we're lucky that the brand, you know, is really an important one and these massive companies will always want to work with us. So the six success of the business and the source and then the different products that gave you platforms to do other things that you're interested in so write books yeah open a restaurant absolutely like lots and lots of different things in all of this time like going from musician to the business when it was yours to the business growing and selling that business and having the license what were the squiggly highs and the squiggly lows Ooh, the eyes, I think one of the, the eyes, there's been many eyes, you know, <laughs> waking up in the morning and hearing that your sauce is outselling Heinz tomato ketchup, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just, you can't beat a high like that when it comes to food. But one of the eyes is a little bit more subtler. It's being able to take my mum on holidays. <gasps> some fantastic holidays to Jamaica where she hadn't been back for many years and she always supported me when I was struggling, you know, throughout my music career and even when we started with the brand. And, you know, with my success on Dragons then, the best thing is just remembering the smiles on my mom's face when, you know, when I could be able to take her on a slap-up holiday to back to Jamaica and travel first class and just really give her, you know, the moments of her life. I think that smile on my mom's face will live with me forever. Was she really uh, proud? Absolutely. You know, um, I was the, the youngest son and I was the one that always seems like never going to make it because I became a Rasta, <laughs> the only Rasta in the family. I was singing reggae. I wasn't doing, my brother was an engineer and electrician and my sister went to university and everyone. And there I was, you know, the only person that people thought, that, you know, Levi, you know, you sure? <laughs> and I made her so proud. And I, I think that's one of the highs for me is that smile that I saw on the first time I took her for holidays. On the lows, it's got to be three years after when... I thought everything was the most fantastic. You know, the sauce was the biggest selling Caribbean sauce. I was the most famous black man in the country that didn't kick a ball or run fast. <laughs> I was into business. And then all of a sudden, when we thought that it, you know, it was smooth sailing, a friend of mine threw a spanner in the works and I was sued for 30 million quid. And there was a moment when all my dreams and everything looked like it was just about to be completely stamped on. I was in court every day. It was one of the biggest court cases at the time. And I remember walking the gauntlet from out of my hotel into the courtrooms and seeing the press there and and seeing some pictures that they were printing of me, all my friends and my ex-girlfriends and everybody was now in the papers saying how terrible I was and taking money left, right and centre. It was a 
terrible, terrible time for me. You know, as I said, it's coming from the moment of, of being lauded and everything, mm. you know, and not just for me, but for Caribbean food in general, because the sauce had become something for Caribbean people to be proud of, you know, massive seller, biggest Caribbean seller within the country. Then all of a sudden, it's Spanner in the works and everybody's saying Levi's a liar. The sauce doesn't belong to him. Somebody else is claiming it and... Not just for me, but for Caribbean people, you know. I, I think it was a, a really terrible moment for them that I could have lost it. But I won, hey, and um, and it's been absolutely fantastic. But that was the low point for me, and it was a court case that lasted for two years. So it was two years of being absolutely at my worst, mm. um, feeling that, you know, I don't want to be around, but I persevered through it. Yeah, that really, 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 really hard. What did that teach you? I don't know if... Does it teach you anything about well, business or yes, relationships? It, or? It, it was too late to sort of teach me the most important lesson by then. But now I tell kids, you know, when they're thinking about doing a business is that you've got to get the legal part of it right, you know. And I think I skipped that. I was just going around thinking that, you know, friends of mine that were working with me coming around to the shires, I would invite a few friends here. Now, now they were saying that it was them and they belonged to it. And I never had any kind of legal thing around my brand about what I was doing. I never had a lawyer or anything like that. I think that's not one of the most important thing I teach kids, you know. You need to protect yourself within your business, you know. Mm. It's not about, you know, the business plan per se. It's about you as a person and getting protection and putting the right people in place to protect you. And I never had that. I had it afterwards. I had a fantastic lawyer and I still have him now. And without him protecting me while the court case was going on, I think I probably would have lost that case. There is a massive lesson there is that don't skimp around the legality mm. of, of the business. No matter, it may be expensive and it's one of the most expensive to do to have a lawyer to be able to deal with all your goings on. But I do think it's one of the most important things that you will face in the long run. There's a theme running through your squiggly career, as I would call it. There's a lot of resilience. There's a lot of change and there's a lot of resilience and a lot of adaptation in your career. It's, it's amazing to hear. Did you have mentors? I mean, I know there's one famous mentor which we might talk about, yeah. but the importance of mentors, advice or guidance to support you. I know you had this kind of inner guidance in your faith and your community and your yes. family, but external guidance what did that look like yeah I remember my, my first mentor you know put aside mom and grandma and, and everything my first mentor was when I left the last job after the driving job I ended up doing a, a warehouse man in Brixton in Palm Base you know <laughs> working in there and one day I just felt to myself look I'm just going to go in the office and I'm going to do the thing like I've seen in many movies you know just take off my jacket and just <laughs> throw it at the manager's feet and says thank you but I'm leaving here I'm, I'm I'm going to go and do my sauce. And I did that, you know. I, did you I, really? I to his office, I said to him, I'm not a warehouse man. I'm Levi Ruth, the singer. And now <laughs> You're I'm, like I'm the Superman of the warehouse. I'm going to get back and do it. And I took my jacket and I gave it back to him and said, thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm off now. To do was it his so, jacket? Or no, your it was jacket? just a company. Did you go and get that? I thought it was your it was jacket. Wear, no, it was a warehouse, sort of overcoated. So I've got this overcoat. vision of you taking your jacket off, throwing it, <laughs> making your point and then going, can I have well, my, jacket my jacket back? back. No, <laughs> it, it was a white warehouse. You're wearing a 
career as. And I left there and I went straight to sign on at the um, Social Security. And I signed on and they gave me a bit of paper with a lady's name on it. And at the time, there was a, a sort of a mentoring scheme going on in Brixton. And the lady's name was Nadia Jones. I'll never forget it. And the person in the Social Security said, go and see this person. And if you really think that you want to do sources and that, they will help you out. And I went to see Nadia. I actually, she had about four people before me. So I waited a very long time before I got to see her. I was about to leave, actually. I was really sick and tired of waiting. Yeah. But I persevered. And the minute I got into her office, I gave her the sources and showed her what I wanted to do. And she looked at me and she says, it's not going to be about the source. And that was the key moment for me. She's saying, this is going to be about you. It's not about what's in the bottle, because I had my guitar there. I was telling her about the song that I'd written and how I wanted to merge music and food together and do Caribbean, but really doing it in a unique way. So she said to me, stop concentrating on the sauce and what's in the bottle. It's fine and it's great and it's one of the best things I've ever tasted, but still she thinks that I should sell me. And it was that moment that I realized that, hey, hang on here, you know, this is not the branding of the sauce. Maybe the brand is, is the Levi Roots brand. And I went home to the kids and I explained to them what Nadia had said. And that's when we started to put me more up front. You know, it wasn't that just saying, let's sell the sauce and go on about that. Mm. But I was selling my story. I was selling my lifestyle. I was selling Caribbean. I was selling my grandmother's story and everything in the Shire. So, you know, we had changed, changed the game for somebody who was selling the sauce. So I would say that that was my first mentor of somebody really giving me an insight into who I am that I didn't really realize that I could do cooking and TV at the same time and sing and, and everything. So when my moment did come after Dragon's Den and BBC gave me my series, I didn't know I was going to do it because one of the producers said to me, can you cook and talk at the same time? <laughs> and I just kind of said, oh, give me a go and I'll see what I can do. And, and it's like, you know, I took to it, you know, just like how it is because of what Nadi had said. It is about you and your music and your performances on stage for many years. Even when I got in front of the dragons with the guitar, she said to me, don't see them as five white millionaires that be able to change your life. See them as 5,000 people in front of you as you normally perform when you're on tour or when you're doing shows. Perform to them. Not perform like you're doing a pitch of the sauce. Perform as if you were singing on stage and don't look in their eyes, see over the top of them. You see the massive audience in front of you and you'll be able to sing that song. On television. Nadia sounds amazing. She is absolutely amazing and that's exactly what I did. I never saw five white millionaires in front of me. I saw 5,000 people in an audience so I could sing the reggae reggae sauce song. But of course that went well, singing the yeah. song. It's the bits <laughs> afterwards that she didn't prepare me for that. Nadia. <laughs> well, um, did Nadia know how significant that I don't think, you. well, she didn't really know the Dragons in as much to give me insight into how horrible Duncan Bannatyne can be and, you know, and how Deborah never invests in anyone and how Peter wears stripy socks and, and, <laughs> now Theo, and Theo will ask weird questions. I mean, nobody prepared me for that. I think everyone was to concentrate on that. Yeah, he's going to sing a song and a show about business and enterprise. <laughs> How weird is that? And of course, when I said it to the BBC that I, I wanted to sing the song, 
they were a bit worried that, you know, it may have profanities in the song. So I had to go and do a, a screen test first <laughs> and sing the song in front of them. And then, of course, the rest is history. Yeah. I, I performed to the song and um, Peter knew that he was going to invest in, in me because he saw the dariness of someone coming up and doing something completely different than what anybody else had done on the show. So did he, did he become your next mentor? So he after did. Nadia? Yes, he did because he confirmed what Nadia said because that moment after the den when they invest in you and normally they'd come up and give you a hug and, and sort of stuff. Peter had me in a massive bear hug, you know, as he does, six foot seven tall, and whispered to me to have a chat afterwards. And after the Dragons then, you know, we had a chat, you know, outside. And one of my key questions to him was, how shall I play this? That's exactly what I said to him. How shall I play this? Meaning that, how shall I play myself you're a massive businessman, one of the most famous person. I'm going to carry your name. I'm also going to carry your money as well because you invested in me. Will I need to change? Will I need to stop speaking my Caribbean vibes and, and start speaking like you, for instance, mm. like, like Peter? But I was shocked when he answered me, you know, because it was a similar thing to Nadia. He said, no, Levi. You know, it's simple as that. And again, that was a signature for me to feel fine that, yeah, it's fine for me to put music in your food. It's fine for me to be singing this song and, and it's fine to sell a product that's based around my culture. Mm. Because I thought Peter would have said, change the colours on the brand, you know. The colours is green, gold and red. It's a Rastafarian colour because I tap back into our, my teachings. And, of course, there's a Rastaman on, on the brand as well too. The sauce is called reggae reggae sauce. The strap line is put some music in your food. And I thought Peter would have probably said, you know, come on, Levi, if you're going to sell this to mainstream, you've got to perhaps call it Levi's grandmother's hot scotch bonnet <laughs> pepper sauce or something like that. Um, but no, he said, Regular reggae sauce, fantastic. You know, he says the brand is not the sauce, the brand is you. And again, it confirmed what Nadia said. And it, it just gave me the power now to really believe in the fact that I was doing something right, that I am capable of doing something fantastic. Mm. As my mom had said, said, because she was the only person that really believed in me before Nadia. I'm not sure uh, Keith Graham sauce would have had the same, the same exactly. effect, though. I think probably with your talents, you probably could have sold <laughs> Keith Graham sauce as well. Um, so mentoring for you, those people, people that Nadia and Peter helped to give you the confidence that like you already had everything that they were saying they just gave you the confidence and a way yeah. of focusing it have you since become a mentor to other people yeah I mean it's been absolutely amazing I don't know how it's, it's come around that way but I think just after the den I started to get invited to these schools you know hundreds of schools around the country these young people that were buying the product or saying to mom can you get <laughs> Levi sauces and for me it was just a wonderful thing to see young people doing visitations about the Levi Roots brand in, in universities and colleges. I'm getting messages from so many young people who want mentorship and that sort of stuff. So I've become a sort of a, a mentor for everyone that buys the product that writes to me and send messages on the website, and I try to get around as much. My school visits have become really popular. At one stage, we had something called the School of Life tour that I was just going around the UK doing, you know. Around the Shires around, again. Around the Shires again, back <laughs> there. And now I had prisons in there as well, too, because Amazing. that was a massive hit for me because I knew that I had to do something for similar people like myself who maybe are in, in a position and thinking that there is no chance for them, you know, because at one stage I was in, in mm. at Her Majesty's pleasure. Dare I say that? Yeah, and I knew that that's where I actually found some of my changes. So I wanted to go back into the schools, back into the prisons and say to young people that, look, if I can do it, 
then you surely can do it as well. I, I never had half of the, the talent that I thought you had to be to become an entrepreneur. But I learned that along the way by having a few people in place to be able to sort of mentor me and help me to do that. And I wanted to do the same. So, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a mentor, but in some ways I, I'm an inspirator. Mm. I, I think the story of how I, I did my business has become an inspirational story to a lot of people up and down the country, which makes me immensely proud. Does that feel like the chapter you're in now in your squiggly career then, you're almost taking on the job title of inspirator. Does that feel like the, a large part of how you spend your time now? They're sharing the story, helping other people. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a really enjoyable one because it's lovely when you know you're helping someone. You may not actually doing the toiling and helping them, you know, doing their jobs. But I think in their head, you're there. And for me, that is the greatest thing that you can do is, is being in someone's head when they're ready to do something and they're thinking of, how do I get over this bridge? Ah, this is the way that Levi would do it or this is the way Peter Jones or whoever is their inspiration would do it. So I'm in a lot of people's head because that moment in Dragon's Den that I prove that you can be you because that is one of my greatest mm. messages that be you, be yourself, but be the best of you. And being the best of you, meaning that you've got to learn how to do that. Mm. You know, being you comes natural. You know, I think sometimes we make it slip, but but if we're aware, we are ourselves. But to become the best of you, you have to bring a few more people in to be able to do that. And now, you know, I have one of the most fantastic swimming Peter Jones to be able to, to make me the best of me. And I think I finally got there now. Uh, it's that's such an amazing way to end the conversation. I was going to ask what's your, your, your advice for people listening, but I think that be you, be the best of you is brilliant. And I would like to say that you are not just in my mind because of a moment on Dragon's Den. You will stay in my mind because I think your career demonstrates resilience and self-awareness and being able to listen and adapt and learn and tap into your Eunice. I think it's, it's much, much more. I think your story and your your inspiration and your message to other people is much, much more than that moment. It's the ups and the downs and all the squiggles in between. I think it's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your squiggly career story with us. Respect. So thanks so much for listening to our first special edition of Squiggly Career Stories today. We hope you enjoyed it, a bit of a change from what we normally do. Please let us know how you found it, give us some feedback, we'd really like to know. We might even do some more of these in the future. And as always, we'd love to hear from you on Instagram at AmazingIf, or you can just email us at getintouchatamazingif.com. And if you haven't already, and if you are a regular listener to the podcast, I do apologise because I feel like we do say, please buy the book every week. <laughs> please um, buy the book and please leave us a review. Sorry for saying it, but it's so important. Yeah. And it does really help us. And I know some people don't pre-order books because you like getting them in the moment. So if you're listening to this on the 7th of January, you literally have 48 hours to wait and then you can buy it and it will be with you next day if you've got Amazon Prime, certainly. And hopefully you might find it in a few bookshops too, yes. you know. If we're going to go on a hunt. We're going to go and try and find one somewhere. <laughs> if not, I might just put one somewhere. Yeah. And next week's Squiggly Career Stories, you're going to get three. You're going to hear from Viv Groskop, who some of you might have heard on our podcast previously talking about how to own the room. She's an author, a journalist, a public speaker, and has also had a really fascinating Squiggly Career story herself. A lady called Roma Agrawal, who is a structural engineer and who, when I spoke to her, was so blown away because she basically built the shard. I mean, not single-handedly, but it's just a fascinating process and a very different world to ours, so she was really interesting to talk to. And then Helen interviewed Roland Harwood, who 
really squiggly. So he's written music for people like Sony, been a lecturer at Royal College of Art, it's run his own company. company, started a new company. Yeah, I always learn and get inspired and think a bit more whenever I talk to Roland. So again, three very different people um, who we really hope you'll enjoy listening to next week. But that's everything for this extended edition of the Squiggly Careers podcast this week. And we'll speak to you again soon. Bye for now. Bye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.